HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, not Jimmy Carbone. Coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick and Brooklyn. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Stas, you like how I put a little Broadway to that? Did you see what that lady did? No, what'd she do? She looked at you with the disgusted look. Well, because I put the Broadway in my voice and she's clearly not a Broadway. Did you enjoy the... Wait, who? uh, An employee or a customer? outside. A customer? Customer. Oh, cool. Whatever. Like, that seat was there to punish customers. You know they only put people there... That they hate. Pay I attention. like that seat. Only when there's not a radio show going on. At least not when we're doing it. Right. I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying. So, we are joined in the studio today with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. Peter's coming for lunch. Uh, again, this is information that the people in uh, out there in cooking issues land don't need to know. Like I think Peter. they care. Yeah, yeah but he's not here for them. He's not here for them. Hey, by the way, odds are Peter Kim took a shower this morning. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying if you, <laughs> you know what? At Peter some point Kim. this evening, Peter Kim will go to sleep, and then tomorrow he's going to wake up when he's thirsty, as David Letterman used to say. He will drink a cool, refreshing beverage, and it will slake his thirst. I mean, he's not going to be here to like you know for Maybe their benefit. Will. So what the hell do they care? People like Peter Kim, I thought, but that's fine. But that's not like Jack. Are you with me on this at all? Joining the booth also by Jackie Molecules. <laughs> I don't know. There's some Peter Kim fans in the chat room. But so. I'm saying, like, like that's even meaner than Peter's not going to be here with you. Well, because... that's what Stas is doing. She's torturing them. It's like Peter's going to join us for lunch, but he won't grace you with his presence on the show. You know? Wow. Yeah. Grace. Okay. Grace. So Grace. So uh, unfortunately, not joined via telephone today with uh, Professor uh, Richard Rangham of the Harvard University. Apparently, do you have a want-want noise in there, Jack? So strong, so strong. I wish... May 3rd. I wish I played, like, a a trumpet or anything, like, brass so that I could put a hat over the front of it and make that noise. You know what I mean? It's just such a classic... It's, like, in your face. Can I hear that one more time? Wait, but what you do have 
is a boat. Oh my god! <laughs> Whoa! Look, I mean, did you see it, Jack? I, look, that might be one of the reasons. Nope. So here's the thing: the doctor gave me like free reign now to do whatever I want. Like I, I can take up my amateur career in boxing again. I don't have an amateur career in boxing uh, with my eye, like my eyes. But then over the weekend, I, I literally tore a muscle in my arm, ripping vines out of the ground in advance of them blooming. I, actually, I don't know. My wife is like. You need to go to the doctor. And I'm like, what the hell are they going to do about it? My arm hurts. Like, what does a torn, what does a torn thing feel like? Has anyone torn anything ever? Does anyone know what a torn thing Not feels like? Not that I know of. I mean, I've broken things. Malcolm says it hurts like hell. Yeah, but is, is, is it possible that it hurts? Like, in other words, like, I can move my arm, like, down and right. like this. I can go bibbity 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 boo right? Yeah. bibbity bibbity boo But I can't extend my arm. Ooh. Yeah, Nastasia's like making- shoulder? No, it's right, like, on the side of my arm. Like, I can't extend my arm, like, I can't, like, punch Nastasia as much as I want to with my left hand. Or, like, do, like, fist pumps in the air of victory with my left arm anymore because of, like, intense, wow. intense sharp pain. If you tore a muscle, you, you could be releasing whatever that stuff is. What the hell are you die. talking about, like, stuff? Like, there's some what? kind of... Yeah, somebody told me that. Okay, yeah, somebody. You sound like Dax, who like no, comes with him with the craziest theories from his dirtbag buddies. The craziest freaking theories. Wow, dirtbag buddies is a great band name. Oh my god, it's the best, right? That's good, dirtbag buddies. Um, and I, I use the term dirtbag buddies so much that I've actually called Dax's friends dirtbag buddies in front of the dirtbag buddies' parents by mistake. Oh my god! I'm like, yeah, Dax is out with his dirtbag buddies. I mean, not your kid. Your kid's not a dirtbag. I mean, they are. You know what I mean? You know how it is. All kids are kind of dirtbags, right? Boat. That's why we love them. Yes. Look, I don't know that we have time to get into the boat. Look, I, I was at the dump, right, as I am wont to be at the dump, and I picked up a uh, – someone threw away a boat. Turns out it was uh, made for the Sears and Roebuck Corporation in the mid-60s. Uh, it is a 14-foot fiberglass runabout, but the hull is fine. All I need to do is find an. I found out later I can buy one of these for like three dollars and fifty cents, and I'm going to have a tough time getting it uh, registered because it has no owner, and I can't find an owner. And do you have to. Yeah, it's like you can't just like suddenly show up at the DMV with a car and being like, "Hey, where'd it come from? I found it." You know what I mean? It turns out you can't do that with a boat either. Be hmm. like, what, what is the the, the dump going to write you an affidavit? Yeah, yeah, that that was dumped off here. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? How you register a boat that doesn't exist? Plus, I have to do a lot of fiberglass work. I have. Stuff, you could go to the Sears company and you could give the thing. They don't. Right? No, they don't make it. It's like Kenmore. They don't make any of that stuff. Mm. They don't make any of that stuff. And there's no online. There's no online way to trace boat ownership because I have the old Connecticut registration number on it. Anyway, it's not worth the amount of time and energy I'm going to put into this dang thing. But I definitely want to get that son of a gun out on the water. It's got a really cool, like, curved front windshield. It's kind of Robin's yeah. egg. It's really nifty, and the wood is still good. It's got a couple of problems, like none of, all the metal is stripped off by freaking scavenger freak shows. You know, people show up at dumps with screwdrivers, just take off little pieces of metal. I mean, whatever. It's good business, I guess. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, point being, uh, we. I have I have a couple of people. Remember remember Captain Jeff, Crazy Jeff intern? Yeah. He's the oh, captain now? He is a Coast Guard. He's oh, one of my favorite right, like yeah. cooking guys, Coast Guard, lunatic. He he used to captain one of those rescue boats that can flip over in the water where in order to be on it, registrant, you have to strap yourself to the top yeah, side and it capsizes and it takes like a full minute to flip around, so you have to hold your breath underwater the whole time. He's the guy that married the judge in, that he had a hearing in front of for some sort of crazy, like, 200-mile-an-hour speeding ticket or some nonsense on his motorcycle. 
That's Lunatic. not a real story. No, it, no it, it, is. it is a real story. And dude, the guy back when he was in the in the service was a uh, was a, a demolitions expert. Guy's a straight nut job. Wow, love can we, that. Can guy. we have him on the show? I, look, that guy. I don't know if anyone listening. Why this person doesn't have some sort of a TV show? I have no freaking he idea. He kind of looks like what's the guy in the Big Lebowski? His friend. I don't know. I haven't seen it in decades. Uh, who's the Donnie, guy that plays yeah. him? Yeah. Anyway, he he went to the French Culinary Institute, and so you know he's a he's a cooking guy as well. But I mean, man, he is like he's like the Long Island version of Duck Dynasty without the beard. You know what I mean? He's like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? We got to get him on the show. Yeah, sure. I love that guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. He always brings a gun with him. I don't know whether he still has his concealed carry, but he once... Okay, I shouldn't say this, but since it's all over, I think it's okay. He was once packing freaking heat at the French culinary under his whites. Who are you going to wow. shoot in the head at the French culinary? Well, plenty. Yeah, wow. dude. Plenty. <laughs> anyway. All right. So we have some questions to get to, uh, so we might as well uh, get to them. Oh, you said when's the ring I'm going to come on now? May 3rd. May 3rd, huh? Yes. Unless he decides to cancel again. You know, I was going to be very favorable towards him on, uh, not, I mean, what his theories are his theories, but, like, there's some people who have come out kind of against his theories. I was talking about him last week, and I was going to, like, say all sorts of unpleasant things about them, but maybe now I'll be a little, no, not really. You know me. Like, uh, like I'm going to be excited to talk to him when right. he finally comes on, but whatever. Uh, so I'm sorry, there will be no Paleolithic, uh, discussions. There'll be no discussions of, uh, division of labor, uh, early in humans. There'll be no, dis- uh, discussions of, uh, tuber consumption in Paleolithic Africa. It just won't happen right now. Till May. Till May. Till May. All right. Kevin writes in, uh, supporting you, actually, Nastasia. I know. I know. Me. I know. <laughs> Stas. But you weren't thinking of these freaking things. You never had one of these things. The shrimp things? He's, well, whatever. Let me read the thing. Oh, before people get all pretzeled up. I have a comment and a couple of questions. Uh, regarding the use of... When you see RE, do you say regarding or do you say RE? I say regarding. Yeah. I'm going to start saying regarding. That's a lot better than saying RE. Yeah. Can we just... There's a girl dressed in some kind of ancient garb out there. Do you see her? I see someone Ugh, in a her, red jacket. Her back is to us, and she's putting a headpiece on. Now watch the front. Are you it's making? So why weird. are you making fun of someone's clothes? It's so. Crazy. Do you want to take a caller before you get to this? Uh, yeah. Okay. She's not she's wearing ancient. A belt okay. with the. Thing. She's got a Xena warrior princess yes. outfit on, but it's not ancient. It's Xena is not ancient. That's New Zealand modern. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, she's through the pipe. All right. Uh, yeah. Caller. Is the caller there? Caller. You on the air? Are you? Hello. Hello. I'm here. Hello. Hello. It's Stephen from Indianapolis. How are you doing? All right. How are you doing? Doing great. Um, I had a question. Uh, you brought up, uh, I think, like two or three weeks ago about the Lahi bread method. Yep. Um, and, and we're going to talk about it again uh, later. Go ahead. What were you saying? Sorry. Oh, no. And, and uh, I, I think we might have to address it again later, but let's just hit it now. Let's just do it now. Go. Okay. Well, my question was, um, so when you're looking at the, the gluten development in the Lahi bread method, I actually have like two breads going in my closet right now over 18 hours, and it's supposed to align and mature the gluten. Uh, and I know that like when you're making, and I, I, I try and consider like what you're doing with gluten in the way of like when you're making stretched noodles, you're lining up the gluten, right? How, how does the gluten mature in each situation? How is it different? Okay, well, you know, one of the, th- the theories, right, the theory of operation here on the, on the no need 
and on a lot of stuff is that actually a lot of what you're doing when you're developing a dough simply isn't necessarily um, the aligning per se, but the actual hydration of the gluten. Now, remember, you're going way back. I haven't actually thoroughly researched this subject in a long, long time. But that a lot of the strength of gluten is coming from uh, – uh, strength of the gluten network isn't coming from uh, the aligning, but rather the hydration and then the um, bonding of the uh, of the gluten network, right? And so that okay. if, if you just let it sit there, and this is why you know also, I mean, most of these uh, most of these breads are fairly high hydration, right? Like, what's the hydration ratio on your on your? What do you got? Um, so it's uh, four hundred grams of flour, three hundred grams of water, so seventy five percent. Yeah, yeah, so that's fairly high hydration, right? I mean. By the way, for those of you that don't bake bread out there, uh, hydration in, in bread language, and in fact, I use this for like a lot of stuff whenever I'm dealing with flours, is a baker's percentage. So it's liquid expressed as a percentage of the flour that you put in. Um, right. It's not over all. It's just over, yeah. it's just over the flour. I yeah. mean, because most of the time when you're making bread, the rest of the stuff is so minimal anyway, so you're not counting like yeast and salt or any other adjuncts you're adding. But anyway, um, so... They're fairly high hydration, right? And just by letting them sit around for a long time, the uh, gluten uh, hydrates over over hours and uh, forms a network. And then usually, right? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but even in like the most simple one, that you have uh, uh, like an, an over 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 step inside of the inside of the uh, whatever you're going to do to give it structure, right? Right. Right. Yes. Right. And so I think that is where like a lot of that stretching is super important is forming the internal structure of the bread. And frankly, that's where like a lot of people uh, kind of fall short with the, with the no need and where McGee, if you go back and read Harold McGee's um, articles on it, uh, article on it in the New York Times, I think his main his main point is the bread is delicious. However, it's it's not necessarily easy using that technique to get a wide variety of internal structures on the bread, right? Because right. it's fairly high hydration and there's not a lot of work. Whereas if you look at a lot of classic uh, classic bread. Um, a lot of classic breads, there's two things that are going on in the bread. There, uh, well, b- millions of things going on in the bread. But I mean, in other words, there's there's the recipe itself, right? And then there's how it's manipulated, and only part of that uh, manipulation. And I would say, from a functional standpoint, the least important part of that manipulation is how the bread is kneaded, right? It's getting it to a certain point of development in terms of its gluten structure, extremely important, right? But then once you get past that. Uh, then like different forming uh, techniques take on uh, their relative importance to give us the different shapes, the different uh, outside crust textures, what the burst looks like when it's slashed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so most of the criticisms I've heard of these relatively high hydration, uh, relatively unworked bread is frankly their lack of internal structure. Okay, so so when you're looking at like the difference in structure between like a like a pulled noodle, which I, I've actually attempted and it ended up miserably. Yeah. Uh, Whose recipe did you use? Is, is uh, what was that? Were you using the Chef Tom recipe? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, and I tried to, and I even did it like like slapping it on the table like they do in the. You know, just to try and relax the gluten. But I, I know that that's linearizing the gluten. When you're making bread, it's actually like the, the kneading is is really important in the structure of the bread because of the way that you're organizing the gluten after the proof. 
Well, yeah, here's a couple things on, uh, okay. on, on the noodle recipe. My f- mental understanding of what's going on watching people make it, right, is you have actually an extremely slack dough. There's almost no elasticity to that thing, right? So in my mind, right. you're dealing with a situation where the gluten has been kind of beat literally – beaten into submission, right? So the structure of the dough is linearized, but the actual gluten has been put into some sort of compromised form, right? Clearly, because if you take a, a, a well-developed dough, right, and you, and you, you know, uh, that you've kneaded a lot and you push into it, the su- it has some elasticity. It comes back. You stretch it, it stretches back. That's why, you know, um, that's why it does that. You can stretch it out thin because it's elastic, but if you just take a big hunk of dough and go shubribi, it has some it has some kind of pull to it. That's what the gluten – you know what I'm saying? And so it's definitely an overdeveloped dough, right? Okay. Now, then, then, now then the – but on the other hand, then why do they need to add uh, – why do they add a base to it, right? So base is strengthening the gluten. I don't know whether that's making it for quicker overdevelopment. I really don't understand it, but I felt the dough that you've made – and it feels dead in your hands, right? So pulled noodle dough in your hands, and I'm sure you felt it too when you, when you did it. It feels weird and dead. You know what I'm saying? Because it doesn't have right. that kind of life that like an elastic kind of gluten-y or like a, even like, like, a, like a pizza dough or something like that would have. Um, so frankly, I've never had good luck with that recipe either. Uh, I, I, my feeling is is that pulled noodles is one of those things that – uh, once you get it right once or twice, you're going to get it right forever. You know what I'm saying? But it's a lot about right. uh, the hydration and getting the texture uh, a- exactly exactly right. Uh, because you know the people I see doing it down you know the block from where I live, you know I look at them and I don't you know think of them as being like some sort of you know enlightened Buddha. You know what I mean? They're not like some sort of being from on high that is given the knowledge of how to make noodles. I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, they probably just hung out with someone who knew how to do it. And then, like, so even Chef Tom, who uh, I don't know what he's doing now, but he was, maybe still is, teaching at the at the cooking school that the French Culinary owns out in San Jose. Um, I bet you, even if you hung out with him for a day, you could probably get it right. You know what I mean? It's all a question of just getting. Right, right. Get, there's some. There's something to it, to the feel of it, that if you just get it right, it's going to go. But my feeling about it has always been that it's an overdeveloped dough. And so I wouldn't necessarily – in other words, if you were to take that dough and you were to uh, uh, you know, somehow add yeast to it after you did that to it, I don't think it would make great bread. Right, right, right. Okay, and, and uh, I guess uh, one more point – and sorry sorry for the multiple questions, but one more point to it is the difference between the, the – the the stretch dough and ramen, right? They both have base in them. Right. But is there such thing as so? Is it is it a mechanical denaturation of the gluten? I'm a chemist, so I know it from like a chemical standpoint and a temperature st- and a thermal standpoint, but not like a, like is there such thing as mechanical denaturation of gluten? Well, I mean, look, I, I from an actual. Um Chemical standpoint, I don't know. I do know that if you look okay. at the farinographs of um, – so they would hook up uh, you know, uh, measurement devices to mixers basically and measure how much energy was being put into a mixer over time uh, in dough development. It's called a farinograph. And I think it is. I mean I haven't looked at them in years. But um, you look at it and there's definitely a peak force that it takes to mix it and a breakdown stage. 
Um, so what that okay. yeah what that would lead me to believe is that there's some sort of peak development after which there's destruction of that network, whether or not it recovers again. Anecdotally, people say it does not, right? And there okay. and there are other there are other does that are that are based on the destruction of the dough structure, the most famous in the U.S. being beaten biscuits, right? So where, where, right. You'll, where you'll take a, a, a dough and you'll just beat the, beat the ever-loving snot out of it with a, with a rolling pin. I went through a, uh, a period years ago where I was trying to make that dough via repeated lamination instead of actual physical violence, and I was never able to get the exact texture uh, through repeated lamination that I was able to get through the uh, just uh, immense physical violence of beating with large sticks. Okay. Interesting. All right. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Good luck and let us know how it goes. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. Have you listened to A Taste of the Past? It's a show devoted to connecting our current food world with its storied past. Host and culinary historian Linda Palaccio welcomes chefs, scientists, authors, scholars, and revolutionaries into the studio to discuss food culture and history from around the globe. Have you seen the culture of food change over oh, the past 25, 30 years? It's been incredible. Linda covers content ranging from the history of black chefs in the White House to behavioral psychology and the evolution of Italian food in America. You can listen to A Taste of the Past anytime on HeritageRadioNetwork.org or on iTunes and Stitcher. Today's program was brought to you by the 2016 Food and Enterprise Summit presented by Slow Money NYC. Want to learn how to finance a better food system? Are you ready to showcase your food business or product in front of New York's top players in the food industry? Join like-minded entrepreneurs and investors at the 2016 Food and Enterprise Summit in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Tickets available at foodandenterprise.com. Save 20% when you enter special discount code FRIENDS20 for Heritage Radio Network listeners. And so, and, and on that subject, you know, someone was saying... Uh, that you they, have another caller. Oh, I have another caller? Yeah, call? we do. But do you want to get to the thing, the, the uh, shrimp thing first? No, we'll, we'll, no, no. We'll, 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 hold on. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah. Call, caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. It's uh, David from California here. How you doing? Hey, good. Um, I'm going to be uh, designing, uh, well, I'm designing a, a house uh, uh, for, for me and my family, but I was wondering if you had some tips about kitchen design, um, maybe just uh, whatever comes to your mind, although keep in mind that I'm probably going to be in an all-electric situation, so no gas. Okay. Uh, are you, like, what, what area of California and what kind of neighborhood is it? Uh, well, I'm actually up in the mountains, uh, and so we're at 6,000 foot altitude, um, and it's, it, it can be cold. Oh, nice. You're in the land of sugar pine cones, huh? Beautiful. I love it over there. Is that, are you in the Sierra somewhere or somewhere, some other mountains in California? So, um, kind of sort of near Big Bear, um, uh, in Southern California, oh, if southern. you know where that is. Yeah, Southern. I only know, like, yeah. All right. What do you, Stas, you know that stuff? Mm-hmm. Stas is like, yeah, I'm from down near there. Okay. So here's what I would say. I would say there are some things, I mean, go induction. If you're going to go electric, go induction, period. You know what I'm saying? And then get, uh, you know, your range is going to be fine induction. How big is your family? 
just my wife and uh, a baby for for now. All right. Well, congratulations on the baby. And are you going to try to in- integrate indoor and outdoor cooking? I'm sorry. Are you going to do have like an indoor outdoor situation? Are you going to try to have some of your cooking take place outdoors? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I have a barbecue and a smoker. Um, although uh, uh, that you know. That's not the bulk of what I do. So what's the bulk of what you do? What do you like to cook? Um, I'm kind of a, a, you know, a, a steak and potatoes kind of guy, um, although uh, I am a deep fry maniac like you are. All right, so, you, so like, I'm going to say this up front. Outside the house, like, uh, like I like having access from the kitchen to an outdoor place where the cooking is. So if you're ever going to do cooking outside, like uh, whether it be grilling or the stuff I'm about to talk about, um, you want to have very fluid and easy access between your main kitchen and outside. And you want that outside cooking area to have a cover on it, right? So you either want to build a separate cover for it or you want to have it close to the house where there's an eave that extends over it such that you can work. That's what I have. And you're going to want to put a deep fryer out there. You're going to want an outdoor deep fryer. I would run that sucker off of propane, which you can get so you don't have to worry about plumbing gas to the house. And since you're not going to use it every day, you can run it off of uh, 20-pound things and it's not going to bankrupt you. I'm just going to make that suggestion right now. And you can, and you know, take it for what it is, but like my my situation like that works great because I have outside I have the tandoor, the fryer, and like an outdoor um, prep station where I can work. That's all protected from the rain, uh, and I love that. It's right next to where my kitchen is. Now it's not perfect because it wasn't designed, but it's pretty good for moving indoor and outdoor, getting large amounts of food in and out properly. Because sometimes we'll be cooking outside and eating inside, and vice versa, and all that other stuff. Uh, inside, I would definitely go. Um, I would 100% go induction. Um, the main thing I would yeah. w- like worry about is I don't know how your re- you know your relationship with um, your spouse is or what they like, but the fight usually is between uh, between visible cooks and the non cooks is between visible uh, exposed storage of things and closed in. I'm a huge advocate for trying to have as much um, non enclosed storage as is humanly possible and throwing away as many non matching um, things as 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 is humanly possible. And this usually comes at odds because people think it's uh, it's ugly. Also, if you don't cook a lot, exposed storage gets dusty. But if you do cook a lot and you do what I do, which is I have like four sizes of bowl and I only have those four sizes of stainless steel bowl and they stack and you're always pulling the one on top so it never gets dusty. You know what I'm saying? You have to dust the shelves and stuff, but they, the, the things themselves never get dusty. So I'm a huge uh, advocate of that. Here's another one. Build a uh, build a uh, speed rack. Not a bar speed rack, but a uh, like one of those cooling racks that uh, – the tray, uh, tray rack, speed rack that you can put uh, sheet trays into. Build one of those, if you ever like entertaining, build one of those into your kitchen. Uh, I have one that's on casters and it can roll in and out and I have one in, you know, in my apartment that doesn't. And you can just, you know how when you're cooking 
you have like a bunch of food and you can't get that food out of the way to cook the next round of food if you're doing like a party or something like this. If you have one of those rack trays, you can just you can just sheet up entirely huge amounts of stuff and throw it into the sheet rack while you're working on the next thing. Or like if you're like me and let's say you make Christmas cookies. I mean I don't know what you do, but let's say you're like me and you make Christmas cookies. You want to make a whole bunch of Christmas cookies. Normally these things would be spread all over your house. So it would be a freaking nightmare uh, while you're making them. But if you have one of these speed rack things, you can just start throwing uh, the sheet trays into it, tray after tray after tray after tray. So I would make sure that A, your oven can handle a full-size sheet tray because it's just so versatile if you're ever going to do entertaining. I would, uh, electric, I would then... Okay. I would, I, if, if I were you, I would use – I would go into some place, whatever oven you're going to get, I would go in and use it a couple times. Like I hate, hate a lot of the um, control functions on modern electric ovens. Like for instance, like uh, I have an – one of my ovens is an electric oven, right? You know what I use it for? Yeah. You know what I use it for 80 percent of the time? Warming. Warming. 80% of the time, it's a warming oven. So, like, I'll be cooking a bunch of stuff in my tandoor or on the grill or I'll, I'll have, like, a whole bunch of pancakes that I'm making on the griddle, right? And I want to keep them warm. But every time that I, uh, every time that I want to uh, use the oven to keep it warm, it takes me 35 to 45 seconds to turn it on and turn the temperature down because they, you know, they assume that when you press go on your oven, you want it at 350, and so to make it, say, 170, you have to sit there forever with your finger on a button. Hate. Hate. So I would look into things like that. Actually, uh, if you can believe it, Dave, I have a CVAP. Ah, oh, yeah. Ah, uh, see? You're, so you, know, you didn't tell me this. Now you go entirely different. So if I were you, here's something like – it depends on how sustainable you want to be, right? One of my dreams, and no one has ever done it. In fact, although it's uh, – me, uh, not Neil Armstrong. Louis Armstrong, the musician, right? Had a, had a, uh, a what's it called? A uh, dishwasher? No, dishwasher. Commercial dishwashers, right? Why doesn't anyone make a commercial dishwasher that has a residential mode that says, "Hey, look it! I have an hour to sit here while you wash dishes," right? And you can be eco-friendly, blah, blah, and quiet, all Bosch-like. You know what I'm saying? And then, but it's like, I have a party. There's 30 people here. Cook the, the dishes. Clean them, clean them, clean them, clean them. And then you press it, and they're clean in a minute, a minute and a half, like a commercial dishwasher. And for that minute and a half during the party, yeah, tremendous energy waste. But it's only for that short amount of time. Why doesn't no one build that? Why does nobody build that, David? Why? Yeah. So you know what people do? You know what people with money have to freaking do? Buy two dishwashers. What a freaking waste of kitchen space two dishwashers wow. is. But it's the only way to get around it if you're a party master because you, you're going to wind up – like your kitchen's going to fill with dishes. And is Some there, people have commercial dishwashers in their house. Who? I've seen them. Who? I've seen them. Who? <laughs> really rich people. <laughs> yeah, but they're not good for normal use because they're entirely – so you have to have a commercial and then you have to have a – For glasses. But you have to have a commercial and then you have to have a re- regular residential unless you hate the environment. Do you hate the environment, Anastasia? I don't. Well, you know, he lives in California. He's not allowed to hate the environment. He lives in the mountains. He's not allowed – it's like you, physically you're not allowed. You'd, you'd be looked down upon by everyone in your community. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's true. Especially in the mountains. Yeah, especially in the mountains. It's a, why would you live in the mountains if you didn't like the environment? Yeah, but but residential dishwashers run for an 
hour. Yes, and but that they doesn't use, waste much. No, water. no, no. They're so, like... they're so much more efficient. They're so much more efficient than it, it. It it seems like it's a waste, but they're very eco friendly compared with. Uh, and they use a lot less power. So that's the other question. You're going to get 220 volts. Uh, oh, thank you, Elliot Papinot, uh, Jonathan Sawyer, the chef at um, what's the restaurant? Uh, the Cleveland Chef. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's got one at his house. At his mm-hmm. house. Does he love it? Does he love 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 it? I would assume so. <laughs> Uh, you know what? It's so freaking easy because someone like Hobart also like can make stuff for home. Just like just like team up with a home person, charge three times as much. How it's many? Ga- do you, how many gallon? Well, how much more energy? Oh my God, Nastasia! Like a thousand times. Oh, I mean, it's like a lot more. They're completely not efficient. First of all, they're they're bad for your dishes because they're running super hot. And they they have like a little boiler that heats all that water up to tremendous temperatures. They're just but they're freaking monsters, huh? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the other thing about them that's nice is that if you have parties a lot, like I have, like here's what's depressing, right? Commercial glass racks are awesome because you have glasses that you're only going to use at parties, right? So you put them in commercial glass racks, and they're so close to fitting in a regular residential freaking uh, dishwasher. dishwasher. So if you just like modified them a little bit, you could store all of your party glasses in racks. You could live like a normal human 90% of the time and then rack and roll when you're putting in having parties. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, whatever. That's life. Big city. Yeah. All we right. do have another okay. caller. All right, caller. Caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hello? Hey, uh, it's Josh from Virginia. Um... I had a quick question on if you had any advice to control bubble size when uh, carbonation, uh, carbonating cocktails out of a CO2 tank. We're running a CO2 tank through with the hose and the uh, you know, screw-on cap. Okay. Uh, okay. How are the bubbles now, and which way do you want them to go? Uh, they're really, really small, like Perrier-esque, right. uh, and I would like to get them up larger towards, uh, like, Topo Chico size, ideally. So, like, a kind of mix of medium and large. Okay. So, for a given liquid, right, for a given liquid, bubble size is going to be determined uh, 100% by the amount of CO2 that is uh, in the uh, beverage and the temperature that it's uh, at. In other words, like, how fast the CO2 is leaving is going to determine the bubble size. So, uh, one thing to do is to get your, your, CO2 pr- your CO2 dissolved, not necessarily the pressure you're carbonating at, but getting the dissolved CO2 level to be much higher. So, ways to do that are to make it colder, right, or to make it clearer, or to uh, carbonate it um, multiple times or more times than you're doing now with a lot of foaming off in between to make sure that you're getting the maximum amount of CO2 in there. So if you have your thing and you let it sit for like 15, 20 minutes, if you reattach your, your CO2 tank and start shaking it again and you hear the gas going from the tank into your beverage, it means that you haven't fully added as much CO2 to that beverage as is possible. Okay? So... Within a given beverage, the bubble size will be determined by those things. And for instance, for note on temperature, just think about when you crack open a cold seltzer versus when you crack open a warm seltzer and the bubble size difference there just because the bubbles are leaving at a tremendously faster rate. And so the bubbles get bigger as they're traveling from the bottom to the top of the glass. Really, 
once a bubble forms, its size is pretty much dependent on, A, the characteristics of the liquid, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and how fast CO2 is leaving the liquid and going into that bubble in the short time it has from when it forms near the bottom of your glass to when it bursts on the surface of the liquid, right? Okay. So now we've dealt with those kind of physical factors. Then there's the liquid itself. So uh, things like salt – uh, like the larger the, the dissolved mineral content in it, the, the kind of smaller the bubble perception is going to be and the size of the bubble is going to be. That's why like a lot of fairly carbonated, like very mineralized waters don't appear to be that bubbly, even though there actually is a lot of CO2 in them. Uh, I'm talking to you, German waters. And um, the you know other thing it's going to is like uh, alcohol content. So if you want larger bubbles, you lower the alcohol content. Um, or anything like that that affects the uh, surface activity of the liquid, right? So, so um, you know, increasing the alcohol content will decrease the surface uh, tension and increase the viscosity, and so your bubbles will start getting larger and foamier, right? So at least that's my – it's been a while since – I think that's right. But anyway, so like there's the liquid itself, but I would focus on physical things first. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let us know how it works. Yeah, well, thanks. All right, cool. Um, wow. All right. So let's get uh, – see, see so what were we talking about? Tortas. This yeah. isn't even a question. It's, it, it, it's a comment. Uh, torta def- – okay, regarding the use of torta to mean sandwich in Mexican cuisine, and just so you know, this is from Kevin, and he's uh, defending Nastasia Hammer Lopez. Kevin defending Stas. Like she needs someone to defend her. Please. Yeah, right. Please. Torta definitely means sandwich. How do you? Oh, I'm not, I'm not, no tangents, no tangents. Torta definitely means sandwich. However, I've also seen it used commonly in Mexico to mean something like a fritter slash patty, right? Which is not what you said, Nastasia. That's my sister had this like. You I said, said it was like fold a it fried, yeah, thing. Fold it, no, shit no, whatever. Inside. Hey, whoa, whoa, family show. No learns in enough. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Don't learn. Let them learn. That's like you know your kid stubs stubs their toe. They're like, oh, it hurts. They're like, get used to get used to pain. <laughs> My mom makes uh, tortas de camarón, which is basically a whipped egg and ground shrimp mix that's uh, pan fried. By the way, I've had that. Uh, uh, ju- uh, just thought I'd share since I never really thought about how a torta refers to both until your sandwich conversation this week. I actually like those things. You ever had those? Mm-mm. I think they're made with dried shrimp. They have that g- dried shrimp taste. But they're good. It's like they're like they're like little patties, and I think they're served like in like a, I think it's a tomatoy sauce. I've had them. Um, I've had at least the style that comes from Guerrero. They're good. I like them, but they're not a sandwich. They're not even an open face sandwich, which, as we all know, is not a sandwich. Uh, here's the question. Uh, my friend and I were talking about people cooking ethnic food of a culture that is not their own. There was a recent NPR uh, article on this uh, where, where Rick Bayless was featured. Uh, when my friend asked me if there's a certain form slash presentation that differentiates high-end food from plebeian food, what are your thoughts on this? Um, well, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that stuff? I don't know. I have some thoughts on it if you, if you don't have thoughts. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I thought what maybe. Was the, what, what's the issue here? What? So the question is: is like when you're taking a, another ethnic food, sure. right? Why is it? This is what I get out of it. Why is it that that a lot of times it can be seen as low end, or why is it difficult sometimes to go high end with certain ethnic cuisines? And furthermore, um, 
why you know why is it that some presentations are seen as yeah. highbrow and some are seen as lowbrow when you're going? And I'll give you an example. Like like uh, many years ago, I went to, and even recently, you go to like a, a, a French restaurant and they do something that is uh, like they put five spice powder on it, right? They go they go Asian in that sort of very very kind of pedestrian sense of just putting five spice powder on it. Like all of a sudden, like for a lot of taste. For a lot of um, consumers, it's going to get knocked a couple pegs down in refinement in their minds just because they associate certain flavor uh, palettes and they associate certain cooking techniques and presentations with less expensive uh, cuisines, right? And we've had this discussion a little bit regarding uh, Mexican cuisine when, I, when yeah, totally. we got back from Mexico and we were – I was upset that there's no way you're ever going to have those flor de calabaza freaking quesadillas like you have in Mexico because no stupid idiot Amer- – I love Americans. But no, none of us are smart enough to pay what it would cost to have right. those kind of – whereas Italian is allowed to be simple, rustic, and refined at the same time. Not to the level of like French, right? But everyone knows that you're paying for these fancy ingredients and so you'll pay a lot for something simple if it's got an it's Italian label on it. Stupak makes all the time. He's like everybody wants cheap, cheap, cheap tacos. Cheap, like where are the best cheap tacos? That's the question everybody asks right and right kind of get what you look for right? right and nobody in other words like it's very difficult to get someone to spend uh you know a lot of money on something that they don't feel is that different from mm-hmm. that's the thing it's like perceived difference and yeah. perceived value so the question is how do you get someone so at at empayon casino for instance he's not doing you know really it's not really mexican food he's inspired by that stuff but it's like like you can see the presentation work on the plate and the, and the kind of work, and so it gets to jump into a, a high, you know, into a high level kind of a situation. So, or, or if you go like Nastasia and I were at Cosme last week, Enrique Olvera's restaurant here in New York, and you know, and so there, I think they successfully are are jumping to a high end presentation, but it's because it's a bunch of stuff that no one here has ever tasted before. Right. Ingredients that never tasted before. So some of the stuff, you know, makes sense like tortillas. Right. But, you know, but a lot of the stuff is is is, um, you know, not the flavor palette that people are used to. And so they're they can take the jump out of their mind and, you know, not like Americans and maybe people in the world aren't necessarily smart enough to understand a very, very well executed plate of beans being worth a lot of money. Right, I mean, the, the exception is risotto. For some reason, people realize that risotto is difficult, and so you can spend a lot of money on like a risotto alla milanese be, and, and not feel ripped off. Right, Stas? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like another way, like if you look at uh, you know Danny Bowen at Mission Chinese, right? So like uh, Chinese food, other than banquet cuisine, uh, where you're spending money just on really, really expensive materials like shark's fin and, you know, not that you should buy – I mean, obviously you shouldn't or, – or, or bird's nest or sea cucumber or any one of these other things. Like, um, you know, it's hard to get people to spend a lot of money on that in the U.S. if it tastes traditional. I mean, I think that was right. the genius of someone like uh, Danny at Mission Chinese was having it be – not that it's that expensive compared to you know what we think of as high high end, but it, it's like uh, having something being so not what you're used to tasting in that category, so different from what you would get at the standard restaurants that it gets to punch through that barrier and go on the other side. You well, know what I'm si- side note tangent: I just bought a whole bunch of the red uh, Sichuan peppercorns. Got them at home. Yeah, that kind of mapo numbing thing. Yeah, you get admission. Yeah, you, you like those? He yeah. he uses them at the absolute limit of what yep. I find enjoyable. Yeah, exactly. 
exactly. It's right at the limit. Right at that limit. And in yeah. fact, it's funny. It's weird with uh, it's weird with certain wines. It's weird with a lot of wines. Uh, that that stuff. But uh, one more note on Mission Chinese before we get kicked off the air. And I'm missing all like all the other questions I have to answer. But. Uh, something I didn't understand. You know they have a wood-fired oven at Mission Chinese? Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like, they use it for a bunch of presentations, but because they have the wood-fired oven, they kind of, they make these pizzas there, right? These kind of, like, Neapolitan-style kind of pizzas, and they make one with pepperoni on it. And then for a while, after I know they had it, I was like, why do they why do they do that, right? Why do they have those pizzas there? Because it's not in keeping with the rest of the menu. It doesn't really make sense from a mental point on the menu, right? Mm-hmm. And then I went there with my kids, and I was like, this is the smartest freaking thing that anyone has ever done at a restaurant. And I think restaurant owners take note of, like, it's hard to step outside of yourself, right, and what you do for a living. But I think this is the kind of, like, where – I mean, not that, you know, Nastasia give me the face because not like Danny needs anyone or the those crew need anyone no. blowing, blowing extra sunshine in their nether regions. But I think they're really good at what they do. You know what I mean? And – um, like I never would have thought to do that there because in, in a way like you don't know that you have permission in quotes to make that kind of food at that restaurant but then now I can shuffle uh, shove as much uh, mapo tofu into my mouth as I care to sh- uh, shove in my mouth and my kids are sitting there eating pizza and they're happy as clams right and so and then they want to go back it makes life so much more enjoyable if you have kids you know what I'm saying huh? cooking issues <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's it. All right. Thanks. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.